Good morning. <clears throat> the reading this morning, um, you'll be able to follow it uh, from Acts 1, 15 to 26. Chapter 1, 15 to 26. It's also, you can find it on page 1090 in your blue uh, pew Bibles. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled, in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number, and he shared our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field, and there he fell headlong. His body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language Archildama, that is, the field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, May his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it. And may another take his place in the leadership. Therefore it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. And then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. They then cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the 11 apostles. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this gift, uh, these words of life, this reminder that you are in control of all things and that you are bringing things towards your chosen goal. And we pray that you would help us as we look at your word this morning. Please speak to us and encourage us, challenge us and make us wise. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Things can spoil pretty easily, can't they? Uh, when I was growing up, if ever the Cosby show came on TV, I'd sit and watch. Bill Cosby was this funny, wholesome flag bearer for family values. On the show, he'd treat people with gentleness, warmth and a twinkle in his eye. He was cheeky and lovable. And so here was this picture of uh, an idyllic home and household, uh, the sort of safe place we'd all want to grow up in. And he was known as America's dad. And his show was the number one show in America from 1985 all the way through to 1989. Bill Cosby was also a generous philanthropist, donating tens of millions of dollars to education and African-American causes. But you know this has all been spoiled, right? About five years ago, a number of people started coming forward with allegations of rape and drug-facilitated assault of young women and even the abuse of children against 
Bill Cosby. In April 2018, he was found guilty of three counts of aggravated indecent assault and sent to prison. And there were a host of other uh, alleged acts, but they fell outside of the statutes of limitations, and so Cosby can't be tried for those. The whole thing is so disappointing. And he's not the only one like this. Here in Australia, we saw the downfall of Robert Hughes. You remember Robert Hughes from Hey Dad? Very similar kind of story about a person whose wholesome public persona evaporated as the reality emerged of his mistreatment of the women he'd been working alongside. Things can be spoiled pretty easily. And there's a powerful example of spoiling in the Bible passage we just read. A man trusted not just by TV viewers, but by Jesus, who chose him to be one of his 12 disciples, not tasked with making people laugh, but with bringing the news of the kingdom of God. This is Judas Iscariot, whose name these days can be used as a substitute for the word traitor. Now, of course, we saw last week that as Jesus ramps up the role given to his disciples, Judas is not there. As the disciples have now become Christ's authorized witnesses, both in and around Jerusalem, but also to the ends of the earth, Judas's name is not listed. But at the end of, uh, in this passage, at the end of Acts chapter 1, it makes us clear why. Uh, makes it clear why that is. In verse 16, Judas's sin is summarized without fanfare. He served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. That is, he was working for the opposition, leading them to Jesus, his friend. And to, uh, and he was, uh, to add to it, he profited financially from turning against Jesus, his friend. It is a multi-level, premeditated, well-informed betrayal of a friend and trusted confidant. You don't want to be a Judas. Today's passage also gave us a bit of an epilogue uh, to the story of Judas. He buys a field with his blood money where he falls headlong. Nasty scene, body bursts open, intestines poured out on the ground. Yeah, And uh, this field of Judas's gains a reputation. It's the field of blood. Apparently, it's no secret that this follower of Jesus fell in more ways than one. So what impact does this little insertion at the end of chapter 1 here have on the unfolding of the book of Acts? Why in this 10-day wait before the explosion of the Spirit's power is this account worthy of Luke's ink? Is this just a waiting room tidy up? You know, they've got these days to fill in Jerusalem upper room. They've got to fill them with something. Maybe we should tidy up the mess, get the numbers balanced and symmetrical again. I just don't think, I don't see why Luke would put this in if it were just about a waiting room tidy up. There seems to be more to this. And I think that Luke is starting to introduce us to the obstacles to mission. And what God does about the obstacles and how God works with the obstacles. As I mentioned last week, there will be many obstacles and hindrances to the mission of God. And here I think we see two obstacles that need to be addressed. Obstacle number one, the apostolic witness is incomplete. Now let's be honest, one extra bloke isn't surely he's not going to make a great deal of difference, right? They're already massively underpowered for evangelizing the entire world. Does the twelfth man make any difference in in cricket they just carry the drinks 
Couldn't they just manage with 11? You know, life has disappointments. Just, you know, just move on, get on with the job, guys. Just, just manage. The issue seems to be more than just tidying up, more than just getting a necessary neat whole number. It seems that the apostolic witness is incomplete, spoiled, broken. You know, maybe you're thinking, yeah, so what? <laughs> well, Christ chose 12 for a reason. It's just one of those numbers, isn't it? It kind of sounds a bit biblical, doesn't it, 12? And it's sort of, in, right through the Bible, it seems to carry a certain amount of symbolism with it. Other than the 12 disciples, the other best-known 12 in the Bible are the 12 tribes. The 12 tribes of this nation, Israel, who were the descendants of 12 sons of Jacob, whose name also was Israel. Now, in the Old Testament, if you scan through, there are many nations that are mentioned, but none more than this nation, Israel. Israel was the people of God. Israel was God's special possession. You will be my people and I will be your God. She is a flock of sheep with God as her shepherd. She is a beautiful, fruitful vineyard planted by the Lord. She is the wife of God. There is an intimate and unique relationship between God and Israel throughout the Old Testament. And yet she has sinned, not just made some silly mistakes or done some naughty things. She's been chronically unfaithful. She's abandoned God. She's worshipped other gods. She's knowingly rejected God's will for her flourishing. So God's flock is scattered. God's vineyard has been ransacked. God's wife has become a prostitute. These are actual descriptions in the Old Testament of Israel's sin. And incidentally, they, they paint a pretty bleak picture for human nature in general, I think. If even the people set apart for God to be special, if even they reject him, then what does it say about the overall relationship between the creator and this pinnacle of his creation, the human being? What does it say about that? Well, we're spoiled. Not in the sense of being given too many, good, good, too many lollies when we were young. We're, we're spoiled in the sense that we try, to, you know, we try to give others the impression that we're good and that our mistakes are reasonable. But deep down, we, we're actually unfaithful to God. We're, we're actually, most of the time, not interested. We are actually interested in a whole lot of things. There's no problem about that. We've poured ourselves into all sorts of things. We've spent years and years of our lives pouring ourselves into goals and, and, and things and pouring money into things. But we haven't, in, we haven't poured ourselves into God. We've been unfaithful. We, th- we, 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 get, we put our energies into things that we actually thought were better than God. So as Christians, we know that Jesus died for a reason. It wasn't just a random, historical, sad act. The reason was he came to earth to restore the relationship that I've just talked about, the broken relationship between human beings and God. And so Christ is God's gracious gift 
to prepare us for an unspoiled future with him. But as Christians, sometimes you know, we, we can get into the, the simple um, equations about Christ and us, and we can leap over the significance of Israel. It's kind of a bit complicated, isn't it? Who are all the people? What, what's this nation? What have they got to do with us anyway? But this nation was at the center of all God's promises for the human race. And so Israel herself needed to be fulfilled. She needed to be fixed. Otherwise, the promises of God could be said to be unfulfilled themselves. But the problem with that is God always keeps his promises. Every single one. It matters deeply to God that every single promise he's ever made is fulfilled. And so Israel, obscure as it may seem to us, must be fulfilled. Israel must be made complete. And here is where the 12 apostles come in. What is happening here is that God is making a new Israel out of the old. An Israel that would center on her faithful king, the Christ, the promised anointed one. An Israel through which blessing would go to the nations, which was always what was promised to Abraham, the father of the nation. So what am I saying? Twelve faithful apostles sent by Christ to be witnesses to the king of the Jews, they are the beginning of the new Israel. And Israel, not just in obscurity, but an Israel for the world. In the Old Testament, Israel was a geographically static people. But the new Israel would be different. They would go out from Jerusalem. The witnesses would witness near and far. And through them, God would bless the nations all around the globe, as he promised Abraham. And so we're in this waiting 10 days, and Peter, Peter stands up. This is somewhere between the 40th and the 50th day after Jesus' death and resurrection. And Peter stands up among the 120. It's a group about the same size as us, of the early followers of Christ. And he says, folks, there's got to be 12. We've got a problem with 11. If we are the beginning of the new Israel, then there must be 12 of us, uh, that is, 12 of the, of the authorized witnesses, which is distinct from the bigger crowd of disciples. And Peter starts quoting from the Old Testament, otherwise known as the Jewish Scriptures, or just to them, the Scriptures. And believe it or not, this whole sordid thing with Judas was not a surprise to God. In actual fact, the Word of God predicted long ago that a restoration would be necessary. Funny that. Obstacle number two. The anointed king was betrayed. Peter quotes from two psalms in his, uh, in, in his rationale to the believers. The psalms are Psalm 69 and Psalm 109 in order to prove that Judas needed to be replaced. And I think it's usually a good idea when you know, when the Old Testament is quoted in the New, it's usually a good idea to go back and have a look at the Old Testament verses that are quoted to check the quote. Here we're talking about the Psalms. I don't know how you find the Psalms. Do you find them uh, personally helpful or do you find them difficult to connect with? Uh, kind of a bit of... We experience a whole range of things with the Psalms. Well, the single most helpful tip I can give you uh, in understanding the Psalms is that nearly all of the time, 
the person who best fits the descriptions given and the scenarios faced in the Psalms is Jesus. That's not to say that we shouldn't look carefully at the original context of the psalm. In this case, in both of these cases, these are psalms of King David, a thousand years before Christ. We also, don't, not, also not to say that we shouldn't think about how it helps us in our own context. Psalms are often used at funerals as words of encouragement to people. They do bring us uh, strength in hard times. But very often we find it hard to relate to the things that the psalms say. For example, when the psalmist talks about being righteous... You know, I don't know if that's the sort of thing you feel about yourself, although you know, maybe you do, but it might be better to think of Jesus in that context. Or when the psalmist is facing peril and persecution because of his enemies, it may actually, you may think, well, I, I don't really have any enemies, um, and that it's, it's nothing like this dramatic. But maybe think of Jesus and what his experience was. When there's this cosmic battle going on in the Psalms between good and evil, think of Jesus. So when we read Psalm 69, I'm not going to read the whole lot, but I will read a few verses. I think we hear the voice of Jesus. So David, David's experiences here and David's words, and yet they're fulfilled by David's greatest son. I'd love to do a whole sermon series on the Psalms at some point, but for now, just this. So this is Psalm 69, verses 19 and following. The psalmist says, you know, speaking to God, you know how I am scorned, disgraced, and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Now, you know, does that ring a bell? Vinegar? What did they give Jesus on the cross? Wine, vinegar. Did they know that he was fulfilling the psalm? No. This is just part of the extraordinary manner in which Christ fulfills the Old Testament. This is, exa- this is what happened on the cross. These are a description in some ways of Christ's suffering. He continues not taking wrath into his own hands, but praying that God would bring judgment upon his enemies. This is verse 22. May the table set before them become a snare. May it become a retribution and a trap. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent over. Pour out your wrath on them, Lord. Let your fierce anger overtake them. It's kind of big, isn't it? Uh, And then this is the verse that Peter quotes. May their place... Is he talking about these, these enemies of God's anointed one? May their place be deserted. May there be no one left to dwell in their tents. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not listed with the righteous. What, Judas has, what has Judas done that is so bad that he goes to the place that he belongs, using Peter's words? Well, he has betrayed God's Messiah. This is grievous. By his wicked choices, he has opposed the very plan of God for the salvation of the world. He's brought down God's anointed king. What evil is this? And yet, through his betrayal, Judas also 
is the fulfillment of Scripture. He is responsible for this heinous sin, and yet through this sin, God saves the world. The death of the Messiah was not a surprise. It was part of the plan. And the betrayer still carries on his shoulders the responsibility for his unrepentant sin. He may have shown remorse, but he never showed repentance. The next psalm that Peter quotes is Psalm 109. And notice again the connections with Judas. Verse 1. My God whom I praise, do not remain silent. Again, this is the anointed one praying to God. For people who are wicked and deceitful have opened their mouths against me. They've spoken against me with lying tongues. They repay me evil for good and hatred for my friendship. Interesting word, isn't it? Appoint someone evil to oppose my enemy. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him be found guilty. And may his prayers condemn him. Here's the verse that's quoted. May his days be few. May another take his place of leadership. And so by replacing Judas, the apostles are also fulfilling God's prophetic word given through Scripture. So the question is, does Judas's betrayal of Christ create an insurmountable obst- obstacle to the mission of God? Well, you might have thought so, because in any other universe, the hero who is snuck up upon, entrapped, falsely accused, executed, the mission fails. That's, the, that's what you expect. How can we say that this is still going according to plan? Well, the mission of God is unhindered because of God's sovereignty. This betrayal of the anointed king can't be an insurmountable obstacle if God's word predicted it and if it also predicted Christ's triumph. Which brings us to the question of God's sovereignty in mission. And this is over the page in your handout. God's sovereignty is often a tricky topic. Uh, But I actually think it is one of the most empowering elements of God's mission. The fact that God works all things together for good, for his purposes. He can do it. You and I, we can't do that. He has the sovereign knowledge and the sovereign influence to be able to bring about his good and perfect outcomes without minimizing our responsibility and our accountability for our own actions. We often, I don't know about you, but I find that I, we, we often worry about the idea of God's sovereignty because we think it means that humans have no free will. How can we be anything but robots if the future is all known perfectly to God who is bringing it about, we, we say. But maybe we've underestimated God. Maybe we've got a, a fairly narrow idea of how these two things hold together. Maybe we've underestimated just how extraordinary his power and influence is. I mean, it's so amazing that he can create beings with genuine freedom where you can go and live the life that you want to live and make all the decisions that you want to make and therefore have genuine responsibility for the decisions that you make and yet still be able to work things together towards the goal that he's he's creating towards his intended outcome 
since before the, the beginning of time. I find this fills my mind with, uh, with awe and wonder at God at how he can hold those two things together so beautifully, maintaining our, our ability, our freedoms and our, our will, and yet at the same time bringing about his glorious outcomes. Today we've seen the obstacle of the incomplete apostolic witness, and we've seen the obstacle of the betrayed Messiah. These things happen because of Judas's sin, among other things. His own choices led to this apparent catastrophe. And what do you think the other disciples would previously have thought about this whole mission? They would have thought that it was derailed. But it wasn't. God is sovereign. He knew this was going to happen. Jesus knew it was going to happen. It wasn't a surprise to him either. He predicted his own sufferings to his disciples on multiple occasions. He even confronted Judas personally, calling him out on what he knew he was going to do in front of the rest of them. And that's why the Old Testament is so important because it's effectively a map for us of the future. Although we do need Christ to help us to interpret it, to make sense of the Old Testament. This is good news for us, I think, guys, because it says that there is some level of certainty in the world. In amongst all the uncertainty, all the concerns that we have, there is certainty. Three particular joys that I think we have from God's sovereignty. It means three things for us. We can know, we can pray, and we can act. God's sovereignty means we can know what is going on and what is going to happen. Because there are a lot of people in the world who are pretty anxious. You know, will there be war? Will there be terrorism? Will there be a, a disease that kills half the planet? Will there be a comet? Will there be persecution? Well, you know what? The scripture actually tells us, yes, there will be. All, all sorts of different things, troubles and difficulties. But we know that God is restoring all things. How he'll do it? We do not know. But, well, actually, we know that he's going to do it through his mission. We don't know the specific details of how he's going to turn this and that. But we do know that he is doing this. So we, sovereignty means we can know. Secondly, sovereignty means we can pray. Not as robots, but as participants in the unfolding of God's plan for human history. There are lots of people in the world who just want to know what to do uh, they, want to, they want to be able to make some kind of difference. Well, you know, this might sound funny, but your prayers can make the world a better place. You know, just by sitting on a chair or walking and, or bowing your head and closing your eyes or however you pray, your prayers can make the world a better place because that's how God uses them. Since God is sovereign then what you, when you pray according to his promises, you, you end up contributing to real answers, real outcomes. Thirdly, God's sovereignty means that we can act confidently. There are lots of people in the world who don't know what to do with their time. But we know that God has instigated a new creation through the new Israel. And so when we act in line with God's mission 
and contribute our, our resources, our time and our talents and our money to that mission, then we are basing our actions and our decisions on God's promises and that gives purpose to our lives. Big purpose. So three great joys from God's sovereignty that we can know, we can pray and we can act. Two final points to make from this passage. Firstly, about making decisions within God's sovereignty. What are the big decisions that you've had to make in your life? Maybe they've been recent or maybe they've been in the past. We all, we all face big decisions at times. How do you approach the big decisions? We're all a bit different, aren't we? You know, Some people like to wait till we have all the information, all the possible options before us. Others like to be quick and decisive and not let things drag on. You know, there are personality differences there and we, you know, we need to adapt to different approaches of other people. But just thinking about it generally as Christians, what about God's input into your decisions? And that's often what we're trying to work out, isn't it? You know, do you agonize over this? Do you know, what job does God want me to do? Where does he want me to live? Does he want me to live here or there? Does he want me to marry someone? And if so, is he, is he going to make it happen for me? Or do I have to sort of sort that out for myself? And will God guide her to me? You know, there's all these, these questions about God and, and our decisions. And how do we make decisions with God's sovereignty in the picture? Now, we could, again, devote a whole talk to this as well, to guidance and decision-making. But I think today's passage reminds us about some key things that are to, to remind each other about. Uh, when making big decisions as Christians. Now bear in mind that this was a unique decision that we've read about here in Acts 1 in the unfolding of God's big salvation plan for the universe. So you and I are never going to get to choose a 12th apostle. Um, but you know, so yeah, sorry. So it, it was a one-off um, decision with monumental consequence, right? And you know what's interesting I mean, it might just be Luke's summary way of writing, but it just doesn't seem that they've agonized over it that much. Huge decision, very, very low agony over the decision. I think that's interesting. Peter says, he said it had to happen because it was in the Scriptures. And so they did three things to make their decision. They established their criteria. They prayed. And they decided. The criteria was pretty specific. This person needed to have been with Jesus and the other disciples for the whole of Jesus' ministry from John's baptism through to the ascension that had happened just a few days earlier. Because they had to bear witness to what had happened. Not just as reporters, but as actual eyewitnesses. They'd seen with their eyes and then they tell with their mouths. And there are two men that fit the bill in, in this little situation. The man with three names, uh, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, just pick a name, uh, and then the man with one name, Matthias. And they, they pray about it. That's the next, that's the next step. And, and the reason that the passage gives us is that God knows our hearts. Because God's sovereignty over all things means that he will do according to his will. And then they make their decision. And how do they make their decision? They cast lots. Now, this was an Old Testament method of decision-making. It's got nothing whatsoever to do with betting. Okay? 
Um, I heard the story uh, this week of a church who was appointing an elder. And they had two candidates for this role as elder, both of whom were exemplary. Uh, they just couldn't identify any ways in which one was superior to the other. They'd done their research. They just couldn't. And so you know what they did? You're not going to like this. They tossed a coin. And, you know, I think that's effectively what the disciples have done here. What do you think? It wasn't a vote. It wasn't a ballot. It was a choice over which they had no influence. And they knew this was important to God. What, what does this tell us about our decision making? Does it say just flick a coin? It doesn't matter. I don't think so. I think this tells us to use our brains, commit it to God, and go easy on yourself. Because it's interesting, isn't it? Sometimes the most significant decisions, you know, if this really is a matter of life and death, and you've prayed about it, and you trust God, you know, then just act in line with that and don't be too anxious about it. Just continue on in faithfully following God. Go easy on yourself. Romans 12 verse 2 talks about the renewing of our minds. It's one of the things the Holy Spirit does in us. And he enables us to discern the will of God. What a promise. That God is renewing our minds so that you can discern the will of God inside your mind. So decision making is not about hocus pocus or about you know getting in the zone, the spiro zone, so I can make a really spiro decision. Making decisions is about wisdom, it's about prayer and freedom. Final point, point two here, uh, our failings and God's sovereign workarounds. I find this passage liberating and this whole idea of God's sovereignty for the reasons I've mentioned. Even the greatest failings, God will work around them because he has a big agenda at work. And we can get on board with that agenda, sharing Christ with the world wisely and prayerfully, knowing that if we slip up, it doesn't wreck everything for God and doesn't necessarily wreck everything for us too, as long as we repent of our sins if we sin. Don't sin. But if you do, ask God to bring good nevertheless. Turn back to him in repentance. God was able to turn things for good through the evil of Pharaoh and through the evil of Judas, his bitter enemies. He can also do it through his frail, dependent children, his friends. He can work around our mistakes because he is sovereign. Okay, to finish. Well, how do you sit in relation to God's mission? Whereabouts are you in, in connection with it? Act 1 is telling us that God has the whole world in his sights. So are you watching from the sideline? You know, you're in the stadium, but you're on the sideline. You're hoping things will go well because, you know, generally when things go well for the, for, for the church, if I'm part of the church, then it'll kind of make it nice and easy to be part of the church. I can continue on entrusting God if I can see that things go well. 
Or are you not even at the game? You're, you're out down the street somewhere. You know, church is nice, but, and you know, don't mind coming to church, but not, this, you know, not feeling this mission thing. Or are you encouraged by the knowledge that God is at work and that we can be part of it, and then you're getting down on the playing field and you're picking up the ball even though you have no idea how to, what to do and you're having a kick and you see where it goes. Because I think that's where Jesus is calling us to be. And to finish his words of the Great Commission from the end of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says to his disciples before he goes, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And here's the promise. Surely I am with you to the very end of the age. Let's pray. Almighty God and loving Father, we thank you for your mission, uh, for this glorious plan written on the pages of Scripture, pointing to Christ, uh, with Christ at the very center of it, Christ our Lord, and our brother, as the scripture tells us, by faith. We thank you for this plan and we thank you for your sovereign power to be able to work all things, the, the good, the bad and the ugly, all in some way together to uh, achieve your ends. And we thank you for your, so, for your sovereign power. We don't understand it, but we, are, uh, we rejoice that we can, uh, we can be part of this. Lord, would you please help us in our lives? Help us to catch a vision of what you're doing. Help us to trust you, to live our lives prayerfully, uh, committing our circumstances and our times and our risk-taking to you. And Father, we pray that in whatever decisions we're making, uh, even if it's just how to spend our time, uh, that you would work good through our lives. Father, we commit these things to you because we want to see Christ's name exalted. And we pray in his name now. Amen.